Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, July 9th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, as always, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial planner. I'm not authorized to give you investment advice. That's your government is protecting you from me. Uh, so maybe write them a thank you note. Do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, one of the things I wanted to talk about was to kick things off the, you know, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, they've been doing, putting a lot of money into oil stocks specifically, well, two stocks specifically, Occidental Petroleum and Chevron. And so, you know, with this oil pullback and threats of inflate of uh, recession and things of this nature, people are wondering, you know, is oil going to drop to 50? Are we going to go into a 2008 type depression? But then I start thinking to myself, why is Warren Buffett buying oil stocks, putting this much money into oil? Now, in Oxy's case, there's some unique characteristics around the fact that he owns a lot of debt there, preferred shares, and he has warrants that... Um, can be exercised at certain prices. So I, you know, I believe it's a, you know, unique situation. But I also think that there is something going on here. And I want to just talk about it, because uh, Buffett uh, is typically known as a long term investor, he doesn't like typically him and Munger have said many times are not big fans of cyclical industries, and oil being one of the biggest, but I think it kind of, you know, that doesn't mean just because Warren Buffett in Berkshire is buying oil stocks that we should too, or, but I just want to analyze it a little bit, you know, and thought about it a little bit. Why, why would he be doing this and what can it, what instruction can it give us? You know, like I said before, he said in the past, he does not like cyclical commodity businesses because why they're price taking businesses, right? There's no unique um, competitive advantage in oil. You drill a hole. I mean, there is some technical knowledge that you have to have obviously um, in capital, but, you know, oil is fungible. It's pretty much oil is oil. There's nothing, there's no special oil. There's no market separation oil. Yes, there's different grades. I get that, but you get my point. It's not, uh, it's not a business where you can have some kind of differentiation that gives you pricing power. And so that's not a business typically that Berkshire likes. So why do I think he's doing this? Well, you know, why are oil prices? Why, what is our thesis on energy? Well, you know, maybe however you want to look at it, whatever analysis you want to do, anywhere from, you know, one to $2 trillion in insufficient investment over the last 10 years in new reserves and production is leading us, has led us to where we are now, where we have insufficient um, reserves, insufficient production to meet the growing demand. And I'm going to show you a, a slide later where um, demand you know, very rarely goes down only in really, really significant economic dislocations like global recessions. And that is not the norm. So, um, and I also think that, you know, going forward, I think the current inflationary impulse is overdone. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the presentation also. But I do think we're going to be in a period of not just in the US, but in the world, of above average inflation. And that's for several reasons I'm not going to get into. I've talked about that before around demographic issues, debt issues, 
um, pension and unfunded liability issues, it all lends itself to increased monetization of debt. So that typically has a tendency to be inflationary. And energy, as we have shown many times in the past, specifically oil stocks or oil, um, has been one of the best returning assets in an inflationary environment. So that's what I think he's doing. Um, I think this is a long-term bet. I mean, people kind of wondered, like, why was he buying Union Pacific? Well, you know, as soon as he bought Union Pacific, they, you know, were hauling all this coal um, from the, you know, PRB. They're ha ha hauling all this oil in these tank tankers that they, you've seen them 100 long, 150 long cars or uh, tankers on the rails. Um, and then what did he do? He, he started lobbying against pipelines. You know, he's against pipelines too, because that's interferes with his business. So it's the same thing with like Mid-America Energy. He was an early investor there. As a matter of fact, I believe the energy division of Berkshire, the guy that runs that's going to be taking over when Buffett dies or retires. But anyways, I think Buffett understands, I mean, I'm not in his mind, but maybe he understands what many of us understand. There's not enough molecules, energy molecules, There's not enough energy. The demand for energy is here and the supply of energy is here. And it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of changes in policy that don't seem to be on the horizon anytime soon to fix the problems that we're in. So I would suggest to you that uh, maybe that's what it has to do. I'll put a, a link to a Business Insider um, article that kind of talks about it a little bit. Um, but I do think, you know, this is an overall multi-year bet by him and for Berkshire. So we'll see. Um, maybe it's just a short-term trade. I don't know. Um, he's bought into things before and then sold them. You know, he bought into the airline business at one time. He got smoked on that. So, you know, he's not infallible. No one is uh, 100% right all the time. But it is curious that, you know, I wanted to talk about this a little bit because he is, a, 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 you know, one of the better investors in the world. It's like, why is he making this really big bet on, on oil? So that's my view on that. Uh, let me know what you think in the comments. And so here we go. Um, one of the things, you know, we talk about sediment and uh, in the short and medium term, liquidity and sediment driving, you know, the markets, you know, over the long term, of course, it's going to be earnings and the performance of the individual businesses. But in the short term, like we've said before, sediment and liquidity drive things. And so, you know, one of the things I've pointed out before is like Google Trends. I use it to look at a trend or, you know, what's popular. Like you could see the same thing like in Bitcoin or some of these other things. And sometimes it makes good sense to kind of, when everybody's talking about something, is it all the way priced in to the market? Probably. Uh, by the time you hear about it in the newspaper, in your local newspaper on the front page, the trend's already probably exhausted itself. So what we have here is a public interest in stagflation has skyrocketed. You know, on Google Trends, it all goes to zero to 100. So we've kind of maxed out on this whole stagflation inflation thing. And just in time, when we've shown in the past several weeks, and I'll show again this week, various indicators showing that maybe we, we've, re we've reached an interim peak in inflation. Now, again, my thesis is longer term, I don't believe we're going to, unless we have a deflationary depression, of course, and I, I can't know the future, it's impossible for any human to know the future with 100% certainty. But, you know, I think that over time with the debt, like I mentioned before, with the debts that we have, with the unfunded liabilities, with the um, just a lot of the problems that we have that 
we don't have money to solve. The tendency in history is for politicians to uh, monetize their issue, monetize their problems. And we've already seen that. And so I think that's inherently inflationary. Um, I think if you look at, uh, for example, the gold price in euros and yen, you will note that they are uh, doing very well. Um, the U.S. dollar right now, we have a lot of people putting capital to the U.S. They're hiding in the U.S. But like we said before, that's that seems to be a you know more of a medium term situation. In the long term, we have intractable problems here in the U.S. that are not going to be fixed legislatively because they're not politically possible. And so, in the end, we will revert to the printing press. And so, I think that you know we may have reached an inflection point. You know, where the public thinks, you know, inflation, inflation, inflation. We had a recent Monmouth poll where inflation was like the top concern uh, for people in the country. 33%, you know, was their top concern. It was inflation and gas prices were like 15%. So it was all around inflation, inflation, inflation. And so that kind of tells me, you know, are we at an interim top in that? That doesn't mean we're going to go back to, you know, disinflation or deflation. But I think, you know, it kind of, what my thesis has been going forward is that, you know, um, we're going to, I think we'll see inflation roll over throughout the summer, obviously with energy prices coming down, with other prices coming down, I've pointed out before, used car prices, real estate prices, it takes time for these things to work their way through the statistics. But I think you will will see that. And then I think the Fed will be apt to uh, put its interest rate uh, tightening policy on hold to see what happens. And like I said, I think that you get a tremendous rally. I think, you know, a lot of the, there's been a big rotation out of commodities, raw materials, and into, you know, back into the old, you know, like ARC is up, um, Kathy Wood's vehicle is up quite a bit. So, um, you know, I don't think that that's lo a long-term theme. I think that the theme throughout the rest of the decade is going to be you know, all commodities are probably going to make all new time highs before this is over with. But I think this is important to understand, you know, from a sediment standpoint, we got all these people on the inflation side of the boat. Uh, and uh, does that mean that we, at least in the interim, have a top in that? So that'd be something to be looking for. And why do I say that? I mean, here we go. Here's five-year tips, treasury inflation protected securities. They've rolled over. It's basically telling you that um, these are coming down in because the bond market senses the fact that we are going to, uh, you know, have lower CPI. And at least since 2014, according to this chart that this uh, guy put up, tips typically lead CPI by about three months. So we should be looking for kind of just what we said. We've, we're seeing more and more indicators indicating what we're saying. It does, like I said before, that doesn't mean we're going to go back to 2% or under inflation. I don't think that. Maybe we get down to four, four and a half, five. I don't know. And then the Fed says, and the government says, that's fine. That's great. That's terrific. Because, you know, hey, remember it was eight and a half. Now it's five. Just like them standing up there and making all these ridiculous comments, that new press secretary they have. She was up there yesterday talking about this is the greatest economy ever. We've created 8.6 million jobs. I don't know if you created 8.6 million jobs. People... People just go back to work because they're off the government um, tit, um, the free free money work. So they had to go back to work. I don't know if that's creating jobs. I guess it depends what your definition of creating jobs is. But um, this is uh, this is very 
constructive. And, I, and I'm suggesting that, uh, you know, the bond market is way smarter than the stock market. That's a known kind of trading axiom. So I hate to keep picking on Germany, but it's kind of like I've said before, I've said this many times over the years since I've been making these videos, you know, we have real time laboratories of governments that have chosen to try to have a green energy transition. Uh, I've always been a detractor. I don't think you can run a modern industrial technical society on intermittent energy of low return on, on investment. Uh, but, you know, we have two laboratories, California and Germany, and in Germany, uh, it's not working. So, of course, the retort will be, well, this is because, you know, the Russians have um, cut off the gas. Yes, yes, it's exacerbated what was already a fail failed policy. And so um, there's no way for Germany to replace the gas uh, that's, uh, you know, being restricted from Russia for various reasons. Uh, because of the war, because of the compressor issue on Nord Stream 1, all these uh, different issues that seem to happen because when it rains, it pours. And so here we go. Um, two days ago, and I'll put a link to this article and other articles that I've referenced in this presentation in the show notes down below. Two days ago, Germany's second largest town of Hamburg told residents to prepare for hot water rationing during certain times of the day due to a, quote, Acute shortage of gas, acute gas shortage. Now Germany's largest landlord has warned tenants that when the heating season starts in autumn, they will only be able to turn their heat up to 17 degrees Celsius, 62.6 degrees Fahrenheit between the hours of 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. So, I mean, you know, I guess you'll have to be wearing sweaters. It's kind of like when Jimmy Carter had his fireside chat, you know, just put some logs on the fire. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, the German Firewood Association says that there's going to be a firewood shortage or wear a sweater. I mean, layer, layer up. I mean, you know, it's good to basically use less energy because that's good for the climate. So there's always a benefit, right? There's always um, make lemon, make lemonade out of lemons. That's what I suggest. Meanwhile, Germany's federal network agency has been pushing for a change in the legal minimum temperatures for tenants. Evidently, in Germany, there's a minimum temperature that landlords have to maintain in the wintertime. With President Klaus Müller telling the, I can't pronounce this, one of the newspapers in Germany last month, that tenants should face pressure to reduce their energy usage ahead of winter. So we'll see, you know, maybe the uh, German leadership uh, can convince the people and inspire them that, you know, these sacrifices are necessary for them to deal with the boogeyman of Russia and that, uh, you know, being not comfortable, being a little bit uncomfortable, not having sufficient hot water or, you know, being a little chilly in the winter, I mean, drink more tea, you know, get some more blankets. That's what I suggest. You know, I'm not trying to be funny here, but this is the result of the policies you know, that Germany has chosen that go back years. Um, and now, you know, if you wedded yourself to the gas from Russia, if you tried to do the energy Vendee, it didn't work, in my view. People in Germany may have a different view. I don't live there, but that's my view. Spending $600 billion and nothing really, you didn't get any massive reductions in CO2. You've created all these problems. And so, 
the anecdote is to um, have deprivation and um, more green energy. Uh, I'm not against green energy. I work in the green energy field, but it cannot run an industrial society like Germany, 100%. And I think, you know, making the, 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 the decision making is not serious in my view. There's no, there's no conference called in Germany. There's no get the states together, get the leadership together. Olaf Schultz should take charge. He is the, you know, the head of the government and say, look, we have to, we, are, we have to be grown up here um, in the context of our CO, of our climate reduction goals. We need to have a serious policy about how this is going to work. And that, you know, that means maybe extending the nuclear reactors that are on, that are currently online, or maybe bringing back some or building some more. Um, it means, you know, maybe further incorporation and working with France or neighbors. I don't know uh, all the dynamics, but, you know, just jumping around like a frog from lily pad to lily pad, reacting like the little Dutch boy putting fingers in dikes isn't going to work. And as I suggested before, you know, um, people don't like to talk about politics on this channel, but it's a fact. You know, we, I just saw a video on Twitter this morning where the Sri Lankan presidential palace was stormed. If you want to see a real insurrection, you should watch that video because that's what real insurrection looks like. There was another video uh, at the port where the president and a couple of his, I guess, family or whatever, they're dragging suitcases. Um, there was a Sri Lanka naval vessel there, and they basically got on the vessel and have to escape the country. Uh, that's what a real insurrection looks like. You're going to see more of that. Uh, it's happening in Ghana. Um, it's happening in various South American countries. Uh, it's soon to be coming to some country, more countries in Africa and North Africa, possibly the Middle East. And, you know, we're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing the Dutch farmer uprising. Uh, we're seeing the, uh, you know, Italian um, uprisings. That doesn't mean they're all countrywide. There's millions of people in the street, but it's growing. People are angry. People are upset. People don't, you know, leadership is supposed to make people in people's minds, at least. I don't believe this, but people's view of government is supposed to make their life better, not worse. And if you're making your country men's life worse, they're going to react with anger. And it's not just a one off. It's a slow decline that's now been perpetuated with this like punch in the gut. And quite frankly, people have had enough. And unfortunately, well, I'm, I'm not hoping for this, but unfortunately, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Governments are going to go down. We've already seen pro-EU governments in Estonia, Bulgaria, uh, you know, fall. We've seen Boris Johnson's out now. He was the biggest uh, advocate for the sanctions and for this war against Russia, economic war, uh, retribution, whatever you want to call it, sanctions. He's out. Now, of course, the next guy that gets in there won't be any different. It's like I said before, you're not going to solve this by voting. These people are all globalists. Unless you get, you have to get the entire apparatus out. You have to get in there and just deconstruct. So it's, it, it almost has to be like a Sri Lankan thing where the wheels have to completely fall off. You know, they tried, I pointed out last week, they tried to reduce fertilizer usage because they were going to grow things organically and their rice production went down 25%. I mean, industrial scale farming needs inputs. If you don't put the inputs in, the production goes down. I mean, you don't need to be an agronomist to know this. This is common sense. But, you know, these people are ideologues. They're true believers. 
And, uh, you know, they're going to go down with the ship, I guess. They're not going to change. These people are not going to change their views. They're not going to change their policies. They're not real leaders. They're just apparatchiks, uh, weak people, um, technocrats, and uh, they don't understand how dynamic economies and systems are. And that, you know, making small changes on one end of the system can create big after sh big shocks on the other end. They just don't get it. I don't get it all. I'm not saying that I'm, I know everything, but I'm certainly Olaf Schultz and Robert Habeck don't know anything about it. And so they're just flailing around, you know, and doing things like this. This is going to aggravate people. It's not going to make, people are not going to sit in and say, well, this is a wartime economy and I need to make sacrifices. And, you know, this is just how it's going to be. What happens when the job losses start? Because they are coming. Um, German industry will not, German industry is reliant on reliable, semi-affordable, at least affordable energy inputs. And it simply doesn't have that now, you know. So this is going to be a problem. This is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And so here we go. I mean, this is, uh, I put the title of the slide, Germany's kind of got ahead of myself a little bit, but Germany's irrational energy policy is now reaping what was sowed. Yeah, in the past. It's not the current government's 100% fault. These are policies that were initiated over you know, years and decades. It says here, Germany is going backward. Last month, Robert Abick, German vice chancellor and co-leader of the Green Party, announced that Germany will significantly increase its use of coal power. So the Green Party has twisted itself in such a pretzel that it's going to allow coal power now. Of course, it's temporary in order to wean itself off of Russian gas. As a matter of fact, they passed legislation there that you can use high sulfur coal because that's only they're having to import coal from other places. Guess where G Germany got quite a bit of its coal from Russia. And so now it has to import coal from places that have a higher sulfur content that's allowed under German regulations. And so they have to just change the policies. It's like I've said before, in the end, these people will change on a dime because they're most concerned with trying to save their political careers. Um, you know, they're not interested in being leaders and telling people hard truths and standing up and saying, I'm sorry that, you know, for 25 or 30 years, we had this policy that wasn't rational and we have to change it. And, you know, and then if you get elected out, you get elected out. But uh, this is what leadership is. And this is not what we are blessed with. For years, the transition to renewable energy has been sold as an expression of modernity of a new technologically advanced environmentally sustainable Germany. Now that the energy vendee is going into reverse with a Green Party minister leading the charge back to one of the most polluting forms of energy, its shortcomings are impossible to ignore. As recently as last December, the German government was promising to accelerate the phase out of coal power. So you see, you need a radical change in government that gives you the change in policy. You need to get all outsiders in there. And is that really going to happen? You're just going to get rid of one stooge and put another stooge in there. One globalist stooge is in there now. You're just going to change it for another globalist stooge. And so people realize this. So um, I'm not sure that you're going to get a globalist stooge in Sri Lanka now. Probably going to get a military government for some period of time, and it's going to be very autocratic. That's typically what you know happens, right? Because people want things fixed. They want order. They want somebody to do something, some leader to come along and fix things. Well, we've seen that before, haven't we? So 
I'm, again, I'm not in Germany. I don't really know German politics. I don't speak the language. Um, I'm just reporting what I see. Um, but I am a student of energy and physics. And it was all predictable. It was all predictable. And so here we are. Um, unfortunately, the, uh, there was already, you know, some people have suggested that, you know, the Green Party is fine with this because they want to deindustrialize Germany. That's, you know, that's environmentally aligned with their policy. I don't think that they're that nefarious or that smart. I think this thing just blew up in their face and they happen to be the ones in power. When the Russians cut the energy off, there's not enough molecules. That's just the bottom line. And there's not enough laying around in other places of the world where you can just replace it at the same, you know, very, fairly cheap prices. It's just that simple. It's not any more difficult than that. It's not a conspiracy. Yes, I believe that the globalists, you know, look, I, I, here's my theory on things, and people may disagree with me. I'm sure they will. I've been called clown, an idiot, uh, all these things. It doesn't matter to me. I have my own views. I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. I'm not going to change my views now because somebody on the internet, you know, calls me a name. The globalists really aren't stupid. They know that with the population, how big it is, and on a finite planet, that you know, it's very possible we don't have the resources necessary over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years as these large population areas of the world modernize, i.e. India, China, Indonesia, all these places that nobody ever thinks about. The tremendous energy inputs are going to be required. The raw materials are going to be required. You know, there's a good possibility that, you know, the earth is big, but, you know, like I said before, head grades are going down, oil fields, all the easy stuff has been found. And so, you know, I think that there's a faction of these globalist elite that, under, that in their mind view it this way and they want to control it because they want to try to control what they believe will be a chaotic outcome if something isn't done. I believe that, you know, they want to control things as much as possible. Um, that way they can control the disposition of the resources um, they're depopulationists, uh, they are anti-human, uh, but this is what they believe. And they believe that they can structure a society, they can control a society, they can make control all these decisions and at least preserve for themselves their position. That's what I believe. I believe that these are the discussions that happen in the World Economic Forum. This is what this is about. Um, and, but the policies aren't going to work. Things, the systems are so complicated in a modern society, agricultural, energy, we're seeing it, we're seeing it all break down. You're seeing like, you know, these policies, I don't believe I'm being a conspiracy person. I believe that this is what they think. This is mostly confined to the Western Europe and your, you know, Anglo-Saxon type countries, United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. The rest of the world's not going along with this. This is what a lot of this is about, in my view. You know, there's $30 trillion worth of resources in Russia. It's the biggest country in the world. It hasn't even been fully explored and exploited. And, you know, they want to get their hands on it. And they want to control it. They want to control the disposition. This is what a lot of this stuff has to do with, in my view. And so it has nothing to do with democracy or, you know, helping the downtrodden in a certain country. I mean, if you believe this stuff... I guess you're beyond help. You're just naive. That's not how things are. So I think that uh, we're starting to see now the foundation of their plans is coming apart because like I said, these systems are so complex 
Uh, what are they going to do? Suspend elections? As long as there's democratic elections, these people are going to be out. The Green Party is going to conceivably ruin Germany. And, you know, eventually, you know, if you don't have, you know, you're paying the equivalent of, you know, two or $300 a barrel oil for the natural gas. You cannot run the, indus the industrial giant that Germany is on that. And once you close down these industries or these industries are hobbled, they will not come back. They will not come back. And the high paying jobs will go away. And then what? What, what, is, what, is, what is the vision for Germany and for the people of Germany? I can tell you the people in the east of Germany don't think the same as the people in the west Germany. So we'll have to see. Uh, like I said, I'm not a, uh, this is not just in Germany. This is all over. Uh, Europe is starting to boil. And, uh, you know, you can play out all kinds of scenarios. So um, I think Western Europe and the U.S. are fully committed to their mission. And uh, we'll just have to see how the, the fissures in the, uh, in the edifice continue to grow. So here we go. Uh, coal generation in the world reaches a record in 2021. Coal's not going anywhere. This is uh, one of the themes that I'm stoked on long term. What's interesting is, is that this is a classic speculator type situation, right? You have coal generation, the need for coal increasing, even in Germany now, by the way, uh, increasing worldwide. And yet we have governments pretty much around the world doing everything they can to hinder and hobble new supply of coal. So what does that tell you is going to happen? So that's part of the part of the thesis of being a speculator is looking for distortions in the economy caused by governments, caused by policy. And so that's not everywhere. I mean, Chinese and Indians and people in Indonesia, they burn coal. They don't have a problem with it. But people in the West are doing everything they can to hobble new supply of coal, uh, ESG mandates for banks the IMF, the IEA, everybody do not invest in no more coal. Okay, well, the problem is, is coal generation and the demand for coal continues to increase. Why? Because it's a cheap fuel and uh, it's easy to build a coal plant. It's easy to move and store coal. This is why. And so maybe over time, uh, this will go down, but uh, it's going down in the US, but you can see the jump, uh, you know, it's just a sl slow move. It was a decline in 2020 because of the because of the uh, COOF economic decline, but it's right back because these countries, look, these people are not going to not, not try to make their lives better. And to do that, as I've said before, everything that we do is a derivative of energy, okay? And so you need energy. And if you can't get it from natural gas or you can't get it, you know, you need big quantities of energy to make economic progress. And that's gonna come from coal and nuclear, okay? So that's just, those are just, facts. And so I think this is an opportunity. Of course, in the short term, you can have, if you have an economic dislocation, if you have, uh, like we have now, liquidity event where liquidity is tightening, where you have a bear market, then of course, it's going to drag all stocks down. But let's look at what some of the coal stocks during their earnings. You know, thermal coal prices are very high right now, higher than they are, have been historically. So what does that mean for cash flows? What does that mean for earnings? What does that mean for uh, uh, debt reduction and the eventual return of capital? Because if you're running one of these coal companies, and if you get you know, 500 or a billion dollars of cash on your balance sheet, you're not going to say, you know what, 
we should build some more coal mines. They're not going to do that. Okay. That's not the current zeitgeist in the oil and gas industry, in the coal industry, in, in pretty much any of these industries. It's just like, hold what we got, um, pay down debt and return capital to shareholders. There's no reason to go out and do this. If you're going to be, you know, ostracized, if you're going to be demonized, if you're going to be attacked for doing it, they're just not going to do it. So you have to have a complete change in mindset among policymakers and among, you know, the, the, the zeitgeist, the overall tenor the, the, of the society has to change where we say these people are needed, these, these, these resources are needed. The people that do it should be, you know, raised up, not, not beaten down. And until that happens, hey, prices are going to stay high with periodic cyclical declines. That's my view. So here's Germany again. Again, I hate to keep picking on Germany, but these things are very instructive. You know, the um, trade balance for Germany, it's industrial powerhouse of Europe, uh, in the world. They have consistently had trade surpluses. And look what's happened. You know, during the, obviously, the uh, pandemic economic crisis, you know, this plunge. But look what's happened now. This is all because of the situation with their energy, the energy inputs into industry. Um, and so they're having to pay more for energy, import more, higher priced energy, and this is going to cause a problem. This is, if you're a German, does this look good to you? Are you happy with this? Is this going to be conducive to prosperity in your country if this stays, stays the same? Or what is the cause of this? This is the question I have. So not just, it's, it's the same in the U.S. It's the same, you know, we have horrible trade deficits. Some people say, well, trade deficits don't work, matter. Okay, well, we'll see. This is not positive in my mind. This is, if I saw a stock like this, would I be a buyer of this stock? Uh, uh, no, I would not be buying this stock. This is, this is an ugly chart. And so here's the uh, oil demand. Um, talked about this before. This goes back to 1966. And as you can see, since 1966, there's only been one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, so we've had, what is that? uh 40 maybe 40 no uh 40 50 60 something years we've had one two three four five six seven eight declines in oil demand growth and so this is why i'm bullish on oil guys demand continues to increase okay over time and Yes, we have, you know, 2008, we had the great financial crisis, slightly went down. This is the COVID, uh, you know, uh, decline. But uh, the, the, this is, you know, this is consistently moving higher. And so the problem is, as we've said before, and why it's such an opportunity in the longer term, and why I'm staying fairly calm on this, a lot of people are freaking out, um, is because there's been insufficient investment. And like I said, um, we've even seen now some of the people that were spouting ESG like BlackRock are starting to slowly change their tune. You know, if you're not invested in energy, you've underperformed. Let's be frank. So again, we can have short-term situations where too many people became uh, too bullish. And so we had a pullback and, you know, we can have cyclical downturns. I'm just amazed with the dollar as strong as it is. 
with the so-called so you know, demand destruction that we're going to see with prices being high at the pump, which is more of a refining constraints than it is the actual oil price, that we haven't seen oil, you know, oil still above $100 a barrel. And I can promise you that the oil stocks in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter are very geared to oil prices being above $80 a barrel. And they are going to produce, again, second quarter results should be coming out soon. And I think we're going to see tremendous, tremendous amounts of free cash flow. And you're going to see a lot more announcements of what are they going to do? Like I've said before, you're not going to go to the board and, you know, let's kick off a $10 billion investment in the Gulf of Mexico. It ain't going to happen. And so what you're going to see is people holding production, capital, maintenance capital, and capital to hold production, maybe some slight increases here and there. Um, to Because uh, there's constraints in oil field services also. We've talked about that. So um, if you can weather the storm, if you can hold your view, I mean, you can trade around this. I'm not a trader. People say, well, John, you know, you talk about these cyclical downturns. Somebody wrote me an email. You talk about these cyclical downturns, but isn't it better just to sell and then buy back? If that's what you want to do, then do it. I'm not good at that. I'm not a trader. So when you sell, when do you get back in? And do you have the psychological makeup of a trader that can do that? I'd rather just say, look, I know this trend is going to be multi-year and I know what's going to end up at, and I'm willing to sail through the storm to get to, you know, the promised land on the other side. So I, I think I have a view on what I think is going to happen over time, which is much higher energy prices um, and much, you know, that presents opportunity for companies that have legacy assets that are, you know, have low production costs. And of course, for oil field services, do I understand that there's going to be recessions and cyclicality involved in that? Yes. Do I understand that sediment and liquidity can depress share prices in the short term? Yes. But I, I still have a view that, uh, you know, I don't know how to pick the bottoms. Okay. So um, if you're, if you're able to do that, then that's your game. It's not my game. And uh, that aggravates people or the, you know, one guy said, well, you know, that's stupid. You should be able, well, why should I be able to do that? I'm not a trader. I don't sit around here staring at a computer screen for every blip. I look for the trends that are in place or blown out sector. And then I haven't seen the thesis is the underinvestment is the key to, to oil and gas. Okay. I haven't seen it, any pickup, significant input pickup in, in, um, investment to fix this problem. And what, I said, and other people have said that I said this a while ago, and I've been saying it, that the lack of investment, this is an extractive industry. You can go back and look at my videos from a couple of years ago. I've been talking about this. The lack of investment in an extractive industry leads to shortages eventually. You have to replace the barrels. You have to replace the pounds. You have to replace the ore that you extract, or eventually you go out of business. And now we find that you know, the market is now coming around finally and acknowledging we're having all kinds of people on Twitter talking about this now. Oh my goodness, OPEC doesn't have the spare capacity. Well, I got news for you. Get ready for the next, uh, the next trick. Not only do they not have the spare capacity, they don't have the reserves that they've been promulgating. So does anybody actually believe that Saudi Arabia's reserves are, the, are what's, what they publish? I mean, I was always amazed, even going back to the Matt Simmons days when I read his book, he pointed this out. They just consistently report 
250 billion barrels of reserves every year, regardless of how much they extract. Does anybody believe that? Maybe it's true. I don't know. I don't know what they're reporting now, but that's what they consistently used to do. Why? Because pe people respond to incentives. And inside of OPEC, at least at the time, your quota was based on your reserves. And so Saudi reported the highest reserves. They had the highest quota. See how it works? People respond to incentives. They're going to match, you know, that, that's what they did. So the problem is, is that they've been, you know, relying on some of these big oil fields that are 50 or 60 or 70 years old. They can't just produce at the same rate forever. And so the, the view is, is that you're into, you know, in some of these big fields like Garwar into tertiary recoveries with water floods and things like this, you're at, that's the last stage of an oil field's production. And after that, I mean, look what happened at Canarel. Okay, so, so I don't know the, I'm not, you know, privy to the information of the, you know, Saudi oil ministry, but these are just, you know, geological facts. And I think that, you know, we kind of understood the fact that OPEC didn't have the spare capacity. And I think the next trick is going to be, uh-oh, the world doesn't have the, you know, or at least OPEC doesn't have the reserves or Saudi Arabia doesn't have the reserves that's been reporting. And I think, you know, when these things happen, you're going to see a higher level uh, baseline level for the oil price. Because in the end, if, if oil supply is not sufficient, it will have to be rationed by price. And so that's what will happen. So we'll see. But uh, like I said, I don't get too excited because I know the facts that over time, you know, and this is, this is part of the, misinf not misinformation, but the false or the faulty analysis the view that if you remember during the pandemic, you know, oil price collapse, well, this is the end of oil. We don't need oil anymore. Remember people actually saying that? Now, I'm not talking about bozos like me on the internet or conspiracy theorists. I'm talking about legitimate investment banking firms, uh, analysis by policymakers. This is a new era. We don't, oil, oil demand has peaked. It's not going to peak for a long time, guys. The problem is, is will the supply be able to match it? We'll see. So we've talked about this before, um, Chinese liquidity and world commodity prices. Here's the uh, blue line is the Chinese liquidity impulses. You see as they create liquidity in the Chinese market, commodities have to happen to go up with a lag. Why is that? Well, China is the major consumer of most commodities in the world. Um, it's the, well, the biggest consumer, let's put it that way, of most commodities. And so when they create a, a credit impulse, it has a tendency to have prices go up. Now, prices are declining for like things like copper, even oil, things are declining. But I would suggest to you is that uh, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in China, they may have, or looks like they've started another credit impulse cycle. You know, you have the, I think the Congress, Communist Party Congress this fall, um, the COVID things, hopefully kind of zero COVID thing is kind of hopefully, you know, uh, dissipating, I, I guess they're going to hold to the policy, but I don't think it's going to be as restrictive. And so, you know, as we see them add hundreds of billions of dollars to the economy and stimulus and other things, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying when they do this in the past, you've seen a rise in commodity prices. And so, this has already happened. We've talked about this a couple months ago. They already started this. And what we've seen is Chinese PMIs, purchasing managers index is above 50. 
you know, uh, here's the composite, here's the service right here, they're well above 50. And now even manufacturing has moved above 50. Uh, so that is means that the Chinese economy is growing, if you in fact, believe that this is, you know, accurate information. But um, so you had this big dip uh, at the start of the year because of the lockdowns and things. I mean, you see how low the composite and service got, um, and now it's recovering and uh, recovering very nicely, if you will. So Chinese economy is in expansion um, and they have more stimulus coming. So we'll have to see if that puts a floor under commodities, that puts a floor under oil, something to keep in mind. Uh, but these things do matter. And uh, these are some of the things that we look at. So what's interesting, this is uh, from Crestcat Capital. Uh, they had a tweet, it says, our co commodities a buy here. So here's the, you know, a longer term chart, at least going back to 2020 coming out of the, coming out of the uh, pandemic. And so, you know, here's relative strength. Every time we've kind of had a low, we've had a bounce off this line. We'll have to see if this is the case here. It'd be interesting to see with the information I just provided here is Chinese, China being the largest commodity consumer and commodities now basically on their trend line with RSI at a, a low that has in the past held up and caused a rebound. Um, people may be on the wrong side of this uh, commodity raw material declines continuing. So we'll have to see. Uh, obviously, if this doesn't hold, you got a long way to go down. But like I said, with China now stimulating their economy to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars with their PMIs and manufacturing and composite turning up uh, into expansion, this could really coincide with a bottom here. So we'll have to see. So I wanted to talk about this. Uh, this is kind of a little bit misleading. French to nationalize the nuclear operator EDF. It's a big uh, electricity utility in France. You know, this is kind of misleading. The French PM has just announced a nationalization. I mean, it was already like 80% owned by the French government, if I'm not mistaken. So this is just, you know, taking it over fully. Uh, maybe that's, you know, a Macron trying to be, you know, showing that he's doing something. He's going to, he's going to put some real management in there. They're going to fix all the problems. You know, we showed last week the, how, how the uh, underperformance of the nuclear fleet in France is uh, not, not good. Um, I don't know the whole story. I've been suggested to talk to a few people that know more than me about it. Uh, I'll see if I can maybe get those people on and talk about what's really going on, you know, because this was supposed to be a big strength of the French. You know, they had this huge nuclear fleet that was going to insulate them, it was going to help from the uh, world, you know, coal and natural gas disruptions, supply disruptions, price increases. And so if it's not performing why it, sh why, why it should or way it was anticipated, it's a problem. But, uh, you know, yes, I think, like I said, I think EDF was 80% owned by the French government. Now, I guess if it's 100% owned, I guess you can call it being nationalized. I, I consider it being nationalized with 80%. The problem is, is that you're not going to get dynamic out of the box thinking to fix the problems when the government's running everything. You know, does, does the French government of Macron select the people to lead EDF based on their technical expertise and their ability to fix these problems or on their political capital or on their politics? I mean, I'll let you answer that question. What do you think? And so on the other side of the coin, this is, you know, South Korea gets it. Uh, from Bloomberg, South Korea will build four more nuclear reactors by 2030. 
and extend the life of 10 older units as the government backs atomic power as a key tool to zero out emissions. You know, all this talk about emissions, emissions, emissions. Okay, yes, that's a benefit. The real benefit is, is that Korea doesn't have a lot of natural resources, just like Japan, and doesn't have a choice. When the, when the price of coal and LNG is, and oil is skyrocketing around the world and the supply is in question, reliable, fairly cheap supply is in question, then nuclear for electricity production makes, makes big sense. Uranium is fairly cheap. Uh, and once you get these reactors up and running, uh, the cost of power is relatively cheap. And so uh, obviously it has a side benefit of lowering CO2 once you get past the construction uh, and the CO2 that's generated during the steel making process for all the rebar and steel and reactor vessels and piping and the concrete. Uh, then after that, yes, of course. But, uh, you know, there is a, there is a CO2 uh, bill to pay, if you will, during the construction and the raw materials process. But nevertheless, this is a positive development. Uh, and like I said, you know, I mean, I'm still long-term bullish on uranium. I think it's still going to make an all-time high inflation adjusted, probably, I don't know. I don't like putting a number on it. I'll just say it's going to make an all-time high. I don't know the timing, guys. And with the uranium stocks, this is another thing. People are emailing me. Guys, if you buy junior resource stocks that have no earnings, have no cash flow, have no production, if you have a liquidity event, they get massacred. They get massacred. It doesn't matter. So people say, well, I don't understand. You said the fundamentals of uranium are the best of any resource uh, sec part of the sector. Yes. But, you know, you, the, the companies don't, they, they don't generate any revenue. They don't do anything. Okay. Most of them are junk. They're trading sardines. Most of them. You have two investable companies that mine, in my view. Cameco and Kaz Adamprom, but people don't want to hear that or just buy physical uranium via the Sprott vehicle or buy the North Shore uh, ETF because it's market cap weighted and you're mostly going to be having the Sprott ETF, Kaz Adamprom and Cameco in that's going to make up most of the ETF and then you'll get a sprinkling of the juniors. That's probably the better way to go for most people, but everybody wants that 5,000 or 10,000 percent mover because that's what happened during the last it will th th those returns will come will you be the guy that picks the appropriate company and then has the stones to ride those 50 and 60 multiple 50 percent plus drawdowns see this is what we've talked about multiple times and most people can't do it won't do it and so that doesn't mean that the fundamentals of uranium and nuclear power are bad because the crap co that's undercapitalized has crap properties that you bought because you saw it on a message board and you've convinced yourself and it goes down 90% that, 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 that do, do you need to understand why that happened and what's really how this works. I've talked about junior resource investing. Well, it's not even investing, speculating. If you want to be an investor in uranium, buy the ETF or buy Cameco and Ca make yourself a portfolio yourself. Just buy Kaz Prom, equal weight Kaz Prom, Cameco and the, and the Sprott Trust. It's not sexy, though. It's not going to go up 5,000%. That's how it is. If you want to play in this market with the juniors, you need to understand that when they go up, you know, uh, you need to sell them. You need to be intimately knowledgeable of every facet. Now, I've in, my, in the AIA portfolio, we've got, you know, several juniors in there, but I look at them as long-term options, okay? And you need to watch the cash balances so you don't get 
you know, what happens is, is these, some of these companies are just basically lifestyle companies for the management. They issue shares, they go to conferences, they raise, they're constantly raising money and telling a story. Okay. And cause people want to hear it. Right. And uh, so, like I've said before, if you have a couple hundred, I don't know how many there are now, but at the peak of the last uranium cycle, I've told this story before, there were like 500 companies in Canada listed on the Vancouver and exchange and the Toronto exchange that had their business as uranium exploration. Now you tell me, are there 500 competent uranium teams out there? Are there 500 legitimate uranium properties out there? I don't know. I doubt it. What happens is, is they have an expression there in these places and you need, this goes for all resource markets, gold, uranium, junior oil and gas, what have you. They have a saying in Vancouver, when the ducks quack, feed them. The ducks are the retail investors that have visions of sugar plums in their eyes and getting rich, turning $1,000 into a million. It has happened. People get lucky. That doesn't mean you're a good investor. If you want to be in these markets, understand the cyclicality and buy the cash flows. Okay? Buy, you know, that's what you should be looking at. Or buy juniors that actually have a path forward to bringing something online, you know, even during the last bull market, I think only like one new one or two new mines came online. One of them was Paladin bringing their mine in Namibia online and the company eventually went bankrupt. Because just as they brought it online, it was the peak, and it was all downhill. And they couldn't service their debt. and went bankrupt. So um, you need to understand these things. And you know, if you don't understand the difference between, you know, legitimate companies with cash flow and junior companies, many of which I've said before are there to just take your money away from you and provide a lifestyle for the managements. I mean, this is how it is. And uh, so anyway, I kind of got off track a little bit there. People don't like me. They think I'm attacking them personally, but I'm just telling you how it is. Uh, this is how it is. So uh, again, appreciate the, uh, the, support. I uh, hope these videos are useful for, for you. Um, one thing I want to note is that uh, I do not, people have accused me of this. I do not, or a couple of people did in the last couple videos. I don't expunge any comments. I do not remove, only re comments I remove are these stupid Bitcoin ones where they have like 32 things in the thread about how they found that uh, they didn't really know how to invest. And then uh, they found this Bitcoin guy and then everybody's saying, yeah, he's great. And they give you links. I get rid of that junk. That's spam. If you want to put an article on there, calling me names, calling me an idiot, a clown, I leave it up. I don't care. All press is good press for John. That's the way I look at it. One guy was like, I don't agree with your videos. You suck. They're kind of, hey, as long as you keep watching my videos, that's all I care about. Okay. I don't, you know, um, I, I, I learned this a long time ago. 50% of the people are going to like what you say. 50%, you know, just as a general are not going to like it. So what? I mean, I'm, I'm 55 years old. I'm not a, a, you know, a pimply faced middle schooler worried about, you know, everybody looking at me on the dance floor. No one cares, you know, in the end. So I'm going to say what I need to say. It's my views. I'm not right all the time. I'm right. Sometimes we've made money for people, people on this know that. And, uh, you know, you can choose to listen. What I don't get is the psychology of someone that doesn't like what I say, but yet comes here and listens to it every week. It's kind of interesting. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I think it's kind of interesting. But like I said, um, the views increase, 
the channel increases, the support increases, and we appreciate it. So just wanted to clarify that we don't, uh, I don't uh, remove any comments. If they don't make it on there, I don't know what YouTube does. Maybe that's what it is. But if you want to call me names and stuff and beat me up in the comments, that's fine. Uh, like I said, that helps the channel that the interaction helps the channel. So thanks for that. Um, so that's it this week, guys. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Appreciate it and have a good week.